Good morning and happy May 1st. I can't believe it's May. Like, is life just moving faster or is that just me? Good gracious, it's May. And today, um, for all of the iPhone users, this is the one day of the year that you'll have the shortest date on your phone. May 1. Do you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Everything else we're going to talk about this morning is meaningful. So I just wanted to start off with a meaningless piece of information. Now grab your Bibles and let's talk about something that matters uh, or your phone or your tablet, whatever it is that you use. Uh, To our guests today, we want to invite you to join with us in our tradition where we hold up our Bibles and say a creed and a prayer together before we jump in. So let's hold up our Bibles and let's go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter number 8. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 862. Acts chapter 8. We believe that when God changes lives, and that's the reason we exist as a church, temple exists to guide people to life change in Jesus. When he changes our lives, the result is joy. Matter of fact, it's the only place we believe any lasting or abiding joy can be found is in a life-changing experience with the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look this morning as, as we're working through the book of Acts here together. Uh, if, you're, if you're new today, kind of catching up with us, we've been working uh, through the book of Acts this year. We started the second Sunday in January, uh, walking through the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at the first person other than Jesus who laid down his life for the thing called church, and that was Stephen. We pick right up on the heels of that this morning in verse number 4 of Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered, why were they scattered? We looked last week after Stephen's martyred, it said, on that day a great persecution arose against the church. And so they began to scatter. But they didn't scatter and hide. They didn't scatter and when people are like, hey, what are you doing? You're new to town. They didn't go, oh, I'm just here for the, for the scenery. I'm here for tourism. They were like, no, I'm here because I met Jesus and he changed my life. And where I came from, uh, they're trying to kill my kids for that. But I'm here to tell you, I believe in Jesus. They scattered, fleeing for their lives and still made much of Jesus. That's pretty amazing to me. Verse number five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah has come. Philip, we met a couple chapters ago. He was one of the seven people that was uh, they laid hands on and appointed to be a servant, a servant leader, a person who's helping serve tables and helping take care of widows. We use the analogy of he's the kind of person who grabs the other end of the table. When we're trying to move tables, he grabs the other end of the table. That's Philip. Philip and Stephen were both in that list. And we remember Philip and Stephen because they're the only two names that we can really pronounce from the list or that were normal names. Philip's the second person. Stephen was one of those people. He's the guy that we discussed last week who stood in, in courage and in confidence, filled with the Spirit of God, and was martyred for his faith. Philip here is the second guy, goes to the city of, of Samaria. It's important to notice Philip 
was not an apostle. Philip was not an ordained minister. Philip was not one of the ones who preached great sermons. Philip was a behind-the-scenes servant. He scatters, and he's making much of Jesus. As he proclaims Christ, verse 6 tells us this. The crowds, with one accord, that phrase again, we've read that phrase a lot so far in the book of Acts, because the gospel always produces unity. We'll talk more about that in a minute. With one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. This is so crucial. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. They heard and saw. We'll circle back to that in just a second. Verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So he's making much of Jesus. And what he's doing is he's meeting physical needs and spiritual needs in the name of Jesus. And then verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. In this kind of paragraph of the text here, I want us to notice a couple things, right? First of all, Philip is an ordinary person who's been filled with the Spirit of God. He goes into this place and he both speaks of Jesus and serves people. Right? Which is very biblical. If you remember when we started this historical overview of the Acts of the church, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke says in the first book, which we call the Gospel of Luke, that was Luke 1.0. He's writing, apparently being funded. His research was funded by Theophilus, we think. This guy who apparently wanted to know more about what was up. We don't know what his motives were. He says, hey, in the first book, O Theophilus, I began or I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We love what Jesus did, but man, some of what he taught doesn't fit real well in the culture. But the world needs both. They need both the declaration of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel. And to do one without the other is something less than the ministry of Jesus. Jesus cares about the whole person. Jesus doesn't just want people to go to heaven when they die. Jesus wants people to flourish on planet earth in the meantime. He's concerned about the physical needs, the emotional needs, and the spiritual needs of a full human being. Which is why again and again he tells us that he has come to restore shalom. Full human flourishing. And so in the name of Jesus, if we're doing ministry that looks like Jesus and makes much of Jesus, then we should care about whole people, not just their eternal soul. Philip both met physical needs and spiritual needs. He both proclaimed and demonstrated the gospel. And they were amazed at what what they heard and what they saw, what was declared and what was demonstrated. And then here's the end result. Back to verse 8, there was much joy in that city, which makes total sense because any time we make much of Jesus, the resulting effect is joy. As a matter of fact, it's the only hope for joy because only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. 
Every other counterfeit and knockoff brand will leave us empty. It might give us joy for a minute, but it will not last. It will not endure. Only Jesus. Only Jesus experienced in the soul and in the body, in the full human experience. The more we experience Jesus, the more joy there is on planet Earth. And I don't know about you, but I feel like most people I'm encountering on a daily basis are missing a lot of joy these days. And the reason is we're building lives that make much of us. And we can't bear the weight of our own glory. We need lives that are built on making much of Jesus. And he makes much of Jesus, both in demonstration and in declaration. And there's much joy, which is incredible because we just read that great persecution had begun. He's on the run for his life. His fellow worker, his fellow servant, Stephen, just lost his life. Only the presence of Jesus produces joy in that kind of suffering, in that kind of difficulty, in that kind of persecution and opposition. Only Jesus. And I feel like that is a beautiful picture of what the life of a Jesus follower is supposed to look like. That we live in a city in such a way that we speak of Jesus and show Jesus. To where the end result is there's more joy than when we got here. That's a beautiful picture. So uh, there's a guy named J.D. Greer. He pastors in North Carolina, a church called Summit Church. And uh, every week, every part of the text that we've walked through, I've studied his research on the book of Acts. It's been really good. But this part of the text, there were three golden nuggets that I'm giving him credit for. This text means so much to, to that church, to Summit Church. They've defined their entire view of evangelism from this passage. If you go on the website or or look through the paperwork, if you went to the new members class at Summit Church, they would say this. Evangelism is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed. That's so good. That's just straight fire right there. That, That is awesome. That we don't live here by accident and we don't live here because this is where our job has us and whatever. I'm just trying to keep my flowers from dying in the front yard. That's my purpose in life. No, like we're living in a city so that joy might be experienced in the city because we're speaking Jesus and showing Jesus to people who need Jesus. How good is that? That when God moves us out of a place, there's more joy there than when we showed up because there's more Jesus. That's just good. That's just a beautiful picture. By ordinary people, not the apostles, not the paid people, not the important people. No, just Jesus followers. Displaying to the whole person, caring about the physical needs of a person, the emotional needs of a person. It's the reason that we've we've started this new program that Lance is shepherding called Local Vision Missions. Because we care about the whole person, not just... Whether or not they'll go to heaven one day, but how they're doing today. And we've had the opportunity to come alongside some people in some really small, simple ways. And the beauty of that is they have felt loved. And Lance has had the opportunity to have conversations about Jesus Christ with them. With a, a homeless veteran who, who needed a part fixed on his car that he couldn't afford so that he can go earn some money. 
We came alongside and developed a relationship with him and helped pay the mechanic for the part <laughs> so this car would run, right? Or the single mom who whose son is having severe asthma problems and back in the hospital again, and so she's struggling to make rent. And so we've been able to establish some conversations about Jesus with her and help her make up the difference in her rent. That's the both and of Jesus' ministry, (laughs) that we're speaking Jesus to people and demonstrating that he loves them in tangible, visible ways so that they might walk away with a little bit more joy, (laughs) a little bit more hope. That's gospel ministry. The hope of the world is not that paid clergy will preach better. The hope of the world is that someone in the cubicle next to them might have contagious joy and actually care about their whole experience, their whole personhood. That's the hope of the world. And the reality is I'm at a place in my life, I want to spend the rest of my life with people who love Jesus and love people. Like there's a whole lot else we can focus on. There's a whole lot else that we do need to get right. But I want to spend the rest of my life doing life with people, linking arms with people who just want to speak Jesus and show Jesus to hurting people. And I've had the privilege of doing that on a part-time basis for the last year with Trevor and Stephanie Cochran. Their ministry is effective enough that I think y'all think they're on full-time staff, but they're not. Trevor showed up here serving in a, a lay capacity, he and Steph, and then um, about a year ago stepped into a part-time staff role. His full-time job is he's a financial planner. Um, they have Reverb Financial Services, uh, which is doing well and, and been a good business. But as God has continued to partner our hearts together and as we've served together and as we've seen God work through Trevor and then our students have benefited from the anointed teaching of God's word that Steph has poured into our students, good grief. She's clearly the more gifted spouse in the relationship. (laughs) The exciting thing is today I get to announce to you uh, that effective today Trevor is coming on full-time staff at the church to shepherd our student ministry and our worship ministry uh, along with Steph and uh, is going to continue to do financial planning on the side, uh, but stepping into this full-time. And what I can tell you about this couple is they love Jesus and they love people. These are the kind of people I want to do ministry with. You excited for them taking this step together? There's another exciting uh, thing that I'll share with you today as well with linking arms with people who love Jesus and love people. And that is there's a young lady who showed up in our youth group and at our school here. And uh, we watched her go through graduation, growing in Christ, and then went off to Bible college. And last summer uh, she served as an intern here, and we realized we can't lose her. Right, She literally worked herself into a job, and we said, we don't know how we're going to pay her, but we're going to fire Lance. Because, <laughs> man, we, we got to get her here on this team. And uh, she graduated from Bible college last weekend, and I'm thrilled to tell you that we are welcoming onto our full-time staff, Miss Nikki Briley. <laughs> And so I'm taking the summer off. I'll see you all later. Good luck to you guys. Um, 
We're also transitioning Lance's role a little bit to uh, uh, not a massive change in his responsibilities because he doesn't have any room on his plate. We're just shifting some stuff around a little bit uh, where he's transitioning from administrative pastor to executive pastor. Um, and so we're, we're in this season of restructuring a little bit here because we've been pretty severely understaffed since the pandemic began. And so uh, we've been spinning a lot of plates behind the scenes. And I'm just thrilled God's been putting these pieces together over the last several weeks because here's the deal. I want to grow old serving with people who love Jesus and love people. And there's so much that we're trying so hard to get right in the church today. And sometimes we miss. It's just declaring Jesus and demonstrating Jesus to a world that is hurting and is hopeless and is miserable and needs a taste of the joy that's only found in him. That's the mission. And by the way, that happens to be the theme of most of the book of Acts. The most profound stories don't happen from the great people. It happens from the filling of the Holy Spirit in ordinary people. (laughs) We're not looking for who's, even in this moment as we celebrate, we don't celebrate the greatness of the Cochrans or the greatness of the Brileys. We celebrate the greatness of our God. And we see people who are dependent on him and surrendered to him and dead to self and full of the Holy Spirit. And that's the hope. And the reason I point that out is that can be true wherever you're doing life as well. It's not something special just because they're church staff. Well, then they're responsible for reaching the city. (laughs) That's not how it works. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, then it's loving people and proclaiming Christ. And I wish so bad I could end here. But the next word in the text is the word, but. Literally, we go from this great story And you can just hear the apostles go, here we go. But there was a man named Simon. I hope there's nobody here named Simon today. Because stinking Simon ruins this whole great story. Simon. Your your version of the Bible might call him Simon Magus, M-A-G-U-S. Simon the magician. Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Wow. How can you know? How can you discern? How can you see the red flag if a leader is a dangerous leader? When he calls himself someone great, run the other direction. Right? It's why we focus so much as we talked about all oh, the staff. Yay. But they're not who's great. Right? We're not proclaiming the greatness of clergy today. It's the greatness of our God that gives us hope and is worth proclaiming to the world. This guy claims to be someone great. And we see this contrast with Philip, who's a servant, who's behind the scenes. He's just demonstrating and declaring the gospel. And then we have this guy who's, look at me. We had this same contrast a few chapters ago. Those of you who've been walking with us, right? We had Barnabas, the son of encouragement, just seeking to serve Jesus and serve people. And then that was contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira, who were like, hey, look at us. We're really generous. Aren't we awesome? And here we have this same contrast with Philip and Simon. But here's the deal. 
here's the takeaway. I believe in every moment of the human existence. We're either trying to be seen as someone great or we're trying to help people see the one who is great. In every moment, we're either developing our greatness or proclaiming his greatness. And the two will not compete with one another. God is so great that if we're busy making much of our greatness, he'll say, I'll wait. And a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. I think there's a lot of churches and ministries that are proclaiming the greatness of a leader. And I believe God's removed his hand from those. Okay, it's all yours. I'll wait till you're done. We're either proclaiming our greatness or his greatness. It's either all about us or it's all about him. This guy, Simon, is a, is a profound guy in history. As a matter of fact, I keep reading, it says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. There's a couple ancient historians from the second century. Uh, one's named Justin Martyr, who actually was from Samaria as well, interestingly. He said that many people in the world at this time in history believed that Simon was a god, small g. Matter of fact, the whole way in Rome, he said he was worshipped as one of their deities in Rome. They had a whole pile of them. They said that there was even a statue to Simon in Rome. He was that big of a deal. Irenaeus in the second century as well said he believed that it was Simon who actually was the original grandfather of Gnosticism. And for all the Bible nerds in the room, that's just an interesting little tidbit. And for the rest of you, don't worry about it. He's an influential guy. Making much of himself. Verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. Here's the question. Was he doing like tricks or literally dabbling in the dark arts? And the answer is, I don't know. Magicians creep me out, so it doesn't matter. If I can't figure out the trick, I don't like it. That is not entertaining. For a guy who's like overly analytical, I can't stand watching magic tricks. It's not fun to me at all. Like, especially if it works. I'm like, mm, voodoo. <laughs> My sons love it. They're constantly watching magicians on TV. I'm like, you're Satan worshipers. Okay. <laughs> Pray for our family. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self, and the name, that name that we keep talking about, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. By the way, can we just pause for two seconds? If you know your Bible, can we just think of John 4, Jesus' conversation with a Samarian woman, Samaritan woman, right? And here we have men and women being baptized in the name of Jesus. Oh. Even Simon himself believed. Believed what? I don't know. We're going to have to talk about it. And after being baptized, continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent the big dogs. They sent to them Peter 
and John. I will tell you, part of the reason I believe joy came to that city is because for the first time in, in recent history, about a thousand years for the first time, Jesus was declared and demonstrated. And part of the result of that is there was racial reconciliation that they hadn't even heard of in generations past. For about a thousand years, there was hostility and hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Because their history was fraught with a civil war. That's how their hatred began. That's, that's the dark part of their history they wished they could ignore. No, there was civil war, brother against brother. And then around 722 B.C., the Assyrian army attacks the northern kingdom of Israel and they carry off as prisoners or as exiles... These Jewish families, they forced them to intermarry, waited for their generations to grow up in their culture, with their language, with their religious views, and then sent them back to the northern kingdom of Israel to populate that land with their culture in it. They were the Samaritans. And so the Jewish people who were in the southern kingdom of Judah were like, man, you're not pure in your worldview. You're not pure in your culture. You've abandoned us. And they hated one another and conspired against one another. And here we see that joy comes to that city because when Jesus is proclaimed and it's not about us, he births racial reconciliation that no culture or system possibly can. And and the beauty of this is... (laughs) Samaria, by the way, I shared this last week, right? So this is called the book of Acts. So if this is a, a, a theatrical performance, right? We're now in Act 2, Scene 1. And during the pause between these two acts, there was a stage scenery change. Stagehands changed the scene from Jerusalem to Samaria. It's where we're going to be for all of Act 2 until we get to about chapter 13. And here's why that's really good news for us this morning in this room. Because if you're not Jewish this morning, this is good news for you. Because this is the first step of the gospel for the rest of the world. This is, this is why we're in this room today. Is the gospel was, was for everyone. It wasn't confined to a nationality or a culture or a location. It's for everybody who bears the image of God. So this is an incredibly important moment. And Peter and John come down to see it. They came down and prayed for them, verse 15, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17 Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So I've told you when we read something strange in the book of Acts, we're supposed to ask ourselves, is this normative or exclusive? Is this how it's supposed to work today? Or is that because of some unique thing that was happening in that moment? Because there's some who've taken this one instance and said, see, the Holy Spirit doesn't come on us until later. Somebody has got to lay their hands on you. You have to have this experience. But that's not what the rest of Scripture teaches. Let me be super clear so that we're not confused by this story. We believe that the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you are born again, you received as much as the Holy Spirit as you can get. 
Now, there are moments where we experience what we call the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it's not that we get more of the Holy Spirit. It's more like the emptying of self. It's more like more fullness of his control and, and, and less of grieving the Holy Spirit and more yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's not divvied out in little spoonfuls based on how good you are. That's a religion of works and performanceism and is not the gospel. We also don't need another person to give us the Holy Spirit because that would also be a religion of man. This is a unique moment in history where for the only time we ever read, there's a delay between faith and the giving of the Spirit. It's the only time we read this in Scripture. And it's the only time we read it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, they respond in faith and the Spirit comes. And that's what we read the, until we get to this point, right? And then we have this weird story. And in the very next chapter, spoiler alert, Saul Tarsus is going to respond to faith in Jesus and he's going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then in the next chapter, chapter 10, spoiler alert, we're going to have the first full-blooded Gentiles respond in faith to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the trend we see until today. So why is there this delay in this story? And here's the authoritative answer. We don't know because the scriptures don't say so. And we better be real, real careful saying we know why something happened in the scriptures when the scriptures don't tell us why it happened. It's okay to say, this was weird. I will tell you, I have a theory about part of what might be some of the potential... Why? I think just maybe there was visible evidence of racial reconciliation taking place here. Maybe. I think that might be part of what's happening. I told you there was three gold nuggets from J.D. Greer. Here's gold, number, uh, gold nugget number two. He called this a ribbon-cutting ceremony for racial reconciliation. You know the Chamber of Commerce, they have the ribbon-cutting ceremony, right? He said this whole thing where the apostles come down... And they laid hands. Isn't that beautiful? There's physical touch and value of one another. Right? Where a Samaritan believer is now going, I thought you hated me and I thought I hated you. And yet we're filled by the same Holy Spirit. And maybe Peter and John maybe hadn't been healed of everything in their heart. Because when Jesus was talking to that Samaritan woman, they were like, what are you doing? And so maybe in that moment, they're laying hands on somebody that they were raised to hate. And they're saying, man, no, you place your faith in the same Savior. You're going to bear the same Holy Spirit. We're going to turn the world upside down together because what unites us is infinitely greater than the history that divided us. And so maybe, maybe just maybe the pause was so that the whole world could see a ribbon cutting ceremony of God uniting his people. But now Simon shows back up. Verse 18. And we have another. Now when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Saying, give me this power also so that I can add it to my show. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The dude said, I want to pay you. 
so that when I touch people, they receive the Holy Spirit. That'll be like, I'll do that right after the rabbit out of the hat, and then I'll do a card trick, and then I'll saw the apostle Peter in half, and then I'll give the Holy Spirit. That's going to be my new act. Is that cool? And and we look at that and we're like, that's ridiculous. Can you believe Simon would do that? And yet if we're honest and we look at 2,000 years of church history, that exact same things happen again and again and again. We have a window of church history where the number of popes in the short window of season is enormous. If you Google today, what years did a pope serve as pope? All of a sudden you'll be like, Brrr. you know why? Because they were selling the papacy. And so they just kept getting outbidded. Like, oh, I didn't get to stay here very long because that guy has more money than me. And then in the history of the church in the U.S., we've even seen some of this. And this is an exaggerated example, but if you go to Christ Church in Boston today, Christ Church is the oldest church in Boston uh, you probably don't know it as Christ Church. You might know it as the Old North Church. This church was founded in 1723, but it didn't become famous until April of 1775. Two men in this church climbed up the steeple with two lanterns to notify the residents in the area that Paul Revere had sent word to them that the British were not coming by land as they expected, but were coming by water towards Lexington and Concord. And all of a sudden, the Old North Church became, it's the most visited historic site in all of Boston. But none of that is the talking point for this morning. That's just backstory for all the history nerds in the room. I want you to notice that this auditorium looks like the stockyards. Do you see it? First time I walked in there, I felt like I was supposed to be like, oh, this is a history, Merca, flag. But it, and I'll, I'm like, this is cattle. This is, you sit in a little box as a family. And if you were wealthy enough to buy a box, they put a plaque on the door of your little box, we have a picture of a, of a plaque from 1724. That's where that family would worship. And here's the thing, right? Here's how you know this was a long time ago. The more expensive boxes were at the front. <laughs> like if we start selling seats next Sunday, we know where the high dollar seats are, okay? We understand. We get it. <laughs> Last night, I was at the final performance of Temple Christian School's production here, The Curious Savage, and I bought seats in the back row. I get it. I did the same thing. I'm sorry. Well, they're selling seats. And maybe we see that and we're like, that's ridiculous, right? But here's what that looks like in the modern church. In some modern churches, that looks like, well, I give generously, so I should have more power than somebody else. I should get more preferential treatment. Or, hey, my granddaddy helped build this building. Don't you know that that means something? Right? We, we do have the same idea that somehow we can earn our way into more power or position. And, and, and if you Google or if you have an actual paper dictionary, I don't know if anybody has those. If you go to dictionary.com, 
There's a word called simony. You ever heard of simony? It is the, it's to obtain or purchase an ecclesiastical office. Here's the deal. When your name gets turned into a noun for the rest of history, you did some stuff, right? He's trying to buy this. And I want you to see, full of the Holy Spirit and grace, we talked about that last week, full of power and grace. This is Peter's response, verse number 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. One commentator said this literally means to hell with you and your money. I'm sorry, mom. That's what the commentator said. I didn't say it. I would never. How's that for a bold response? If you're trying to buy to manipulate the story of Jesus, there's sulfur on that. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You neither have part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, verse 22, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I just want to pause there for a second before before we move on. I think there's a lesson for us when we see the life of Simon. Two lessons that are, are worth noting. Here's the first one. Not everybody who prays a prayer is really following Jesus. He believed and was baptized. And it was all about him and his manipulation and his gain. This is a scary thing. I'm going to say very specifically to anybody who's single in the room. Just because they tell you they went to church doesn't mean you should do life together. If you're considering going into business with someone, because they used to go to Sunday school, just because someone prays a prayer doesn't mean they're really following Jesus. Maybe as a little kid, they heard some good hellfire brimstone sermons, and they're like, well, hell sounds terrible. I'll pray a prayer. Sure. That doesn't mean they're followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean they've given their life to Jesus. Here's the second observation. We should be leery of leaders who love the spotlight. Here's a guy who, when, when the threat of the spotlight growing dim was on him, he was willing to sell out to get it back. Verse 24, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord. That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Some of the theologians I was reading about this text were arguing for or against. Did Simon truly repent? Was he truly born again? And they were arguing a case that the scriptures don't say. We don't know. I will tell you, he was an awfully influential and wealthy man, and he doesn't show up on the pages of scriptures again. 
I don't know. Not looking good. But here's, here's what is amazing. When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All of history changed. Because when they came, it doesn't say they stopped and talked to any Samaritans. But on their way home, they sure did. All of history changed because one ordinary person filled with the Spirit of God both declared and demonstrated that joy can be found in Jesus for everybody, from every walk of life. How great is that? All of history changed. Because one ordinary person, full of the Spirit of God, declared and demonstrated that joy can be found in Jesus and that that joy is available for everyone. That's the message that we're sent off into our workplace tomorrow to proclaim. That's the calling that we declare in our homes, in our families. And it's the reason we're partnering with missionaries all around the world is so that there will be joy in that city because they see and hear Jesus. I want to share a story about our partnership with MANA worldwide. If, if you're new to Temple and you're not sure who MANA is, MANA is a large organization with feeding centers and hospitals and orphanages and churches that they partner with all around the world. Um, and more importantly, they have a coffee company called Mango Tree. <laughs> and every cup of coffee you drink here at Temple is helping feed a child somewhere in the world. And uh, this past week, I got to be at the annual board of directors meeting for MANA Worldwide. And one of the big updates that they gave were about our works in the Ukraine. Specifically, there's a ministry that we've partnered with as a church in the past called Smile House. And for weeks, all of our MANA families were hiding in the basement until it just became too unsafe. And so through the generosity of the people of God, uh, MANA was able to get our orphans and staff and some neighboring ministry partners across the border into Romania to Father's House. We've got a picture here of Father's House. It's a large, very, very large home that was donated to Mana. Um, when it was donated, it was a little bit dis- It was one of those free gifts that cost us a lot of money. <laughs> Had to have a lot of restoration done. A large home that's been mostly empty for a lot of years. We were able to get our Ukrainian staff and children there. Our Ukrainian orphans at Mana. Um, first came to Smile House when they were very little. They're teenagers now. They're young women. They're not kids. And they've come into this place and seen the heartbreak of the people around them and have determined to shine as light in this dark moment in that corner of the world. And so every night they are gathering together with windows open Praising God and worshiping. They're, they're having church every night in that house. And the incredible thing under that roof is there's, there's Romanians and Ukrainians and Armenians and Americans all living together under the banner of Jesus. 
We've got a picture of, of some of this group together with some of our MANA team that went over to, to take some supplies and resources. And they said the joy that was in that house was palpable. You could feel it. With these different cultures and different languages all worshiping together. And, and here's the part of the story that just struck me. One of the Ukrainian young ladies heard one of our MANA staff refer to them as refugees. She respectfully corrected the MANA staffer and said, God has not brought us here as refugees, but as missionaries. (laughs) You know what that is? That's an ordinary young person full of the Spirit of God who's determined to leave joy in that city because we've declared and demonstrated the love of Jesus. And tomorrow I think that's your calling that you'll carry with you too. It's a calling I'll carry with me too. That we might say there's more joy in my city because Jesus stuck me here full of His Spirit. So I want to speak and show Jesus.